0: Today we start a new series, an advent series, throughout the month of December, and our sermon text is from Genesis 3 verse 15. Genesis 3:15, "I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." So, as we are starting today our Advent series, uh, it's important for us to think a little bit about the word, what it means. The word Advent means coming or arrival. This is a season that Christians have observed for over a millennium. Since the first coming of Christ, all of you likely have participated in an Advent season somehow. If you've attended a Christmas Eve service. That's part of what, what an Advent calendar is. Perhaps some of you observe calendar, uh, uh, an Advent calendar at home with your children. Perhaps you have come from a more liturgical background, so this is familiar to you. But what do we do during Advent? During Advent, we teach our hearts to do something we don't do well often, and that is waiting. Waiting. Advent is a season of waiting, and as we remember the first coming of Christ, we remember that He is coming again, so we wait. Each week, we'll remember one word that helps us wait well, faithfully, for Christ, hope, peace, joy, love. This is what these candles to my left, your right, represent And finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll light up the Christ candle, which reminds us Christmas is about waiting, but Christmas is also about promises being fulfilled. Today, we turn to the word hope. Christmas is a season of great expectations, isn't it? Church events, reunions, gifts, food. And our home decorating the Christmas tree is a family tradition. The day after Thanksgiving, we go and we get a tree. And it's fascinating to see the eyes of our little ones as they shine. As they stare at the lights and the ornaments at night in our dimly lit living room. It's been fun to watch Elise in this season as for the first time she is really interacting with some of our Christmas traditions. She especially likes the low hanging ornaments on the tree. She believes they're there for her to destroy and she does a very good job at destroying them. So by now the lower level of our tree is bare. We make sure that our special ornaments do not hang low, but they hang high. But Christmas can also be a time of great disappointment, can't it? Unmet expectations, loneliness, all kinds of hardships, broken relationships. Perhaps one of the hardest aspects of Christmas is the fact that often conflicts are brought about by family reunions. At this most wonderful time of the year, we sometimes can face contentiousness. Can't we? In a fallen world, conflict can be a great source of discouragement. But conflicts very rarely are at the root of an issue. Instead, conflicts very often reveal the issue that is at hand. So there's a sense in which conflicts can be a source of hope. When conflicts are handled appropriately, there is, a great, there is great hope that wrongs can be made right. Really, the storyline of the Bible is a storyline of conflict resolution. The meta-narrative, the the, the whole narrative of the Bible, can be understood under four simple words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And, And this is the movement of the Bible. From something that was made well, to something that was done wrong. To a plan to restore all of these things. And our text for today is our first glimpse at the hope of restoration we have in Christ. There's a sense in which our sermon is going to be a little different than what we normally do. My text is Genesis 3:15, but there's a sense in which my text is the whole Bible. And I'm looking at the whole Bible so that we can find hope in an age of Conflict. Uh, Australian theologian Graeme Goldsworthy would say that the context for every verse in the Bible is the whole Bible. So there's a sense in which in order for me to preach Genesis 3.15, I have to preach Genesis through Revelation. The book of Genesis is not just a book of beginnings, but it is a book of foundations. And in Genesis three fifteen, we find the foundation for our hope. It is a surprising foundation because hope comes through conflict—a God-initiated, a God-conflict a that God brings about because of sin. So, as Christians, our hope does not come from the fact that we currently live lives that are free. Of conflict or free of troubles. No, our hope rests in the fact that in the midst of our conflicts or of our troubles, Jesus fights for us. That is the hope of the Christian life. So today, in our short verse, we'll consider two points. First, we'll consider the clash of the seeds, and then we'll consider the victory of christ so let's consider first the clash of the seeds so how do we get to genesis three fifteen? i mean it's only been a few a couple of chapters a few verses and that which was very good turned into very bad how do we get to this conflict we know how genesis begins don't we In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the first verse of Genesis 1. The last verse of Genesis 1 is verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's how Genesis begins. This is creation. The word very good here um, could also be understood as perfect. And God saw everything that he made, and it was perfect. Everything that God made was perfect. So in a perfect world, there is no need for hope. Because why? what do we need to hope for if everything is already perfect? We see this exemplified in Genesis 2. Adam, in perfect obedience, keeps the garden working at it. And the culmination of this perfection is when he receives his wife Eve. A relationship of no conflicts, no strife, no shame, no sin. But something terrible takes place in the beginning of Genesis 3. A new character gets introduced into the narrative a serpent, a cunning, wicked serpent. And this serpent tempts Adam and Eve. To act out of unbelief towards God. Did God really say? So Adam and Eve, instead of choosing the perfection that God had provided for them, they choose rebellion against God. Instead of choosing all the freedoms God gave them, they choose the one thing that God had kept from them. They choose to call good evil evil. And evil good. Adam and Eve, instead of choosing perfection, they choose sin. Instead of choosing God, they choose rebellion. And thus we arrive at Genesis 3:15. Genesis 3:15 is often referred to as the proto evangelion that means the first gospel, In Latin, it is the first time hope is mentioned in the Bible. It is the first time that redemption is promised. So as God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve, He comes and He speaks to the man, He speaks to the woman, but He also speaks to the serpent. To the man and the woman, He gives them punishment, but He also gives them promises. To the serpent, He promises Judgment and judgment only. God speaks in terms of seeds. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. So who are these seeds that would endure conflict with each other? The seed of the serpent is a spiritual seed, not a physical seed. The seed of the serpent is the faithless Unrighteous man who perseveres without repentance in the sin of Adam. The seed of the serpent is the devil and those who give their allegiance to him. John 8 44 Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your Father's will. By nature, this is who we are, enemies of Christ. By nature, we are without hope. The seed of the woman, however, is both physical and spiritual. From Eve's offspring that would come one who would give us all hope. The seed of the woman is ultimately Christ. And those who are found in him. Now notice what the text says. God here, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, or your seed and her offspring. So the enmity, the seed of the woman, and the seed of The serpent experience demonstrates God's mercy. It is initiated by God. The enmity between Satan and Christ, the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent is initiated by God himself. I will put enmity there. God steps in and says, this is all wrong. But I will show mercy. I will show mercy through conflict. Justice here should have given Adam and Eve a terminal death verdict. Genesis 2.17. God says to Adam, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And yet, Adam and Eve, Ate of the fruit of the tree, and they're alive, aren't they? Well, sort of. They certainly died spiritually, but, but they're given a chance. They're given a second chance at redemption. God lets them live, and they will find spiritual life again in the promise of a seed, in the promise of a son. Friends, God owed Adam and Eve No redemption. The history of humanity could have ended right there. In the beginning of Genesis 3, God could have judged Adam, Eve, and the serpent and destroyed the world. But God so loved the world that He gave gave His Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perhaps the idea of God showing mercy by creating enmity conflicts might be strange, perhaps even foreign to you. But friend, very often, God brings about calamity in order for us to know and understand our deep need for Him. God placed enmity between the woman and the serpent in order for men to understand their need for a redeemer. God is in control of all these things. Conflicts, calamities do not fall out of the control of God. As God is speaking right in Isaiah to a foreign ruler who was to oppress Israel, he says, I form lights and I create darkness, I make well-being, and I create calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. God is in control of our lives when all is going our way, and God is in control of our lives when everything seems to be out of place. A theology that separates God from calamity is a theology that preaches a God who is unable or unwilling to show mercy. Because very often, God shows His mercy by bringing about calamity. I mean, friend, think about the calamities and conflicts and sufferings of your own life. If God is not in control of it, then who is? If God is not in control of it, then why pray? If God is not in control of your life, then is He God? But if God is in control, then there is purpose in suffering. Then there is purpose in conflicts. There is purpose in calamities. But if God is in control, then prayers matter. If God is in control, he's able to do something, he's able to intervene, he's able to rescue, he's able to redeem, and he's able to bring it about for a purpose. I understand that the issue of the sovereignty of God over sovereignty over suffering raises an array of ethical questions, but if you're struggling to make sense of God's sovereignty in your own experience of suffering— can I encourage you to do two things? First, elevate your view of God rather than your view of men. And second, just accept that we don't have all the answers about the complexity of God. God works in ways we don't understand. In the, in the book of Isaiah, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declared the Lord's. The Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we trust the Lord, and we know that some questions that we have today are going to remain unanswered. But we know that God is good. Why? Because we believe that. We trust that. We believe in his goodness because he promises to work all things out for the good of those who are his. So God shows mercy through calamity, but God also um, shows that through his through through the bringing about of conflicts, he has a plan. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is part of God's master plan. It's part of God's master plan. At the heart of Christmas is the necessity for a war to be fought. To be fought. God created conflict between God and Satan. God created confl- this conflict because God had a plan for redemption. And what a formidable enemy, the serpent. But God had a plan to defeat the serpent. A plan that only God could accomplish. And we see this plan unfolding through the biblical narrative. And throughout the biblical narrative, we see the perils of the battle against this powerful ancient serpent. Often often even giving the impression that the seed of the woman would be destroyed. Abel, the seed of the woman, was murdered by Cain. The seed of the serpent, because of his righteousness. And it seems that the conflict was over. And the serpent had won. But God gave humanity hope. Through another son named Seth. Seth carries on the seed of the woman. Noah, the seed of the woman, along with his family, called the world to faith. The seed of the serpent, the world refused to hear. So God, in his wrath, wiped out the seed of the serpent from the world. But the seed of the serpent came back. And yet wickedness continued. Because... Because sin lingered even in Noah's heart, didn't it? So God called Abraham and promised to bring about life from his seed. But even the seed of Abraham is a mixed seed. Isaac versus Ishmael. Jacob versus Esau. But as the people of God, Israel, the promised seed of the woman grew strong. The seed of the serpent persisted. Small, insignificant Israel versus powerful Egypt. Humble Moses versus the mighty Pharaoh. And after a time in the wilderness, God delivers his people from the powerful head of the serpent, Pharaoh, and leads them to rest in the promised land. But the seed of the serpent kept encroaching the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. The serpent was so cunning that it would even penetrate the hearts of the Jews. So we see David, the seed of the woman, persecuted by Saul. We see David, the seed of the woman, suffering in the hands of his own son, Absalom the seed of the serpent. Even the sons of David who were to rule Israel with justice and equity grew in wickedness to the point that Israel was infested with the seed of the serpent. And it seemed as though there was no hope for the seed of the woman. But God always preserves to himself of remnants that will not bow to Baal. So God sends the prophets to Israel and they called Israel to repentance. The prophets had a message of judgment, but they also had a message of hope. Israel was like a tree that was chopped down to its Stump, Isaiah 5. But, Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's the promise of Christ. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and And the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears. But with righteousness, he shall shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Friends, this is the promise of hope. When it seems as though the seed of the serpent was about to succeed, and the people of Israel that were supposed to bless all nations has become just like the nations. There's the promise of Christ. This is the promise of Christmas, the promise of the seed of the woman. This is the promise of victory. So now we turn to the victory of Christ. As Christians, we find great assurance in the fact that we know the end of history. Right? Have you ever heard the phrase, the right side of history? There is the right side of history, there is the wrong side of history. And people usually judge what the right side of history or the wrong side of history is according to their own morality. Well, the Bible tells us that that is true. There is a right side of history and the wrong side of history. But the right side of history and the wrong side of history are according to the seeds. The wrong side of history is Satan and his seed. The right side of history are those who are found to be in Christ. Why? Because Christ wins at the end. At the end, Jesus wins. We've been given a glimpse at the last page of the book. And we know that victory belongs to Christ. And what instills even greater hope in us is that Christ came to fight for us, So if Christ is victorious at the end, we too will be victorious. If we want to be on the right side of history, we must be on the right side of Christ. Notice that what God promises is not ultimately a battle between Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers. No, notice the singular pronouns. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise head. His heel. God often works through representatives. Moses stands before Pharaoh on behalf of Israel, and Israel is delivered. Samson single-handedly takes on the Philistines, and Israel is delivered. David fearlessly confronts Goliath against all odds, secures victory for the people of God. Now, it's Jesus' turn. Adam failed and subject all humanity to the power of sin. Now we need a better Adam. Now we need a better Noah. We need a better Abraham. We need a better Moses. Now we need a better David. We need a better prophet. We need God. We need a God-man who can win and fight for us. Hebrews 2, 14-15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is Christmas, right? Shared of flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has power. Has the power of death. There is the devil. You see, Jesus came to take on the battle against the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That's us. Okay? That's the conflict of the seeds. Jesus comes, picks up the fight against the devil, and delivers us from slavery. When I was in elementary school, my brothers, who were six years, who were six years older than me, attended the same K-12 school. And my greatest defense against bullying were the words... I'm going to talk to my brother. I'm going to tell my brother, my brother is coming because my brother was greater than my bullies. What a powerful thing it is to have one who is stronger than us on our side. What a, what a powerful thing it is to have someone who is stronger than us fight for us. I, I love the second stanza Of the hymn before the throne of God above that says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upwards, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Brothers and sisters, Satan is our enemy, and his weapon of choice is accusation. He is called the accuser of the brethren, but he is also called the father of lies. He has been a liar from the beginning. Satan is an accuser, but he has no grounds to bring any charge against us. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when when Satan condemns us, he has no ground to condemn us, does he? Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Did you see? It is not that Satan's accusations against us are unfounded. unfounded. It is that they are refuted by God who justifies. If God didn't justify, Satan would be right. But God Justifies us. To justify means to to declare righteous. So Satan accuses us of sin and of unrighteousness. But God says, not true. Why? Because those sins are paid for. How is it not true? How is Satan wrong when he accuses us of being sinful and unrighteous? We have sinned, it is true. We have been unrighteous, it is true. But Jesus, through suffering, accomplished righteousness for us. Did you notice in the text that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent? But the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman as well. So Christ came to suffer. Yes, Jesus came to suffer. He came to be bruised. Not only was the taking of humanity... A humbling experience for Christ. Jesus came vulnerable as a baby. He had to learn obedience through suffering. He was tempted by Satan himself. He was rejected, despised, dishonored. Jesus endured mockery, disdain, humiliation. And he took on the cross. And it seemed as though all was lost. But it wasn't. The cross wasn't ultimately a fatal blow for Jesus because the serpent bruised his heel. That's not fatal. But on the cross, Jesus would bruise the head of the serpent. Certain, Certainly a fatal blow. The cross was not a place... For Jesus' defeat, the cross was a place for Jesus' victory, victory over sin and Satan. More than that, the cross was the place we re- we received victory in Jesus. Colossians two thirteen through fifteen, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses you see that that is the basis of our right standing before god this is the defense that we have against the false accusations of satan all our trespasses have been have been paid how by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this is what satan demands right the guilt, the debt of sin. This Christ set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. So friends, if you walk around with past guilt, if you walk around trying to make yourself right before God because you've done wrong in the past, Friend, you have not understood the gospel yet. The gospel is not that we pay for our debts by doing good or by doing what is right. The gospel is that Jesus takes our debt and He nails it to the cross and we bear it no more. It is done. We we, we carry no guilt because we're good. No, because Jesus is good. Because in His goodness, He was perfectly obedient because in His goodness, He died in our place. So friends, we are free. We are free of the oppression of the devil. And not only that, we are made one with Christ. So if Christmas is a hard season for you, can I give you a word of hope? Can I give you a word of hope that You you may experience loneliness in the next few days. But you're never alone. Christ is with you. You may long for love. You may long to be remembered. But in Christ, you're perfectly loved. And Christ never forgets you. Friend, friend, you, you may long for things... And physical goods and gifts. And you may be disappointed with what you receive. But friends there is no greater gift than, be for, than to be forgiven of our sins. And for the devil's accusations of us to fall flat. We have received the greatest gift of Christmas. Which is Christ himself. And through him forgiveness for our sins. So Jesus fights for us, and he accomplishes victory for us, and the victory that Jesus accomplishes for us is not small. Listen to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, Satan is a serpent, a venomous serpent, but Jesus has removed its venom. Sure, Satan can bite. Sure, sure, he's still powerful. But he cannot poison us. He cannot defeat us. He has been defeated. So we have hope. So brothers and sisters, what is our great hope in this life? It is not that we are too strong or too secure or too powerful. Our great hope rests in the fact that Jesus came to secure victory over sin and Satan for us and this victory is ours by faith. Through his death and resurrection, the ancient serpent has been defeated and you and I are called today to along with Christ find victory. Listen to this closing verse in the book of Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is my prayer for you as well. At this moment, I want to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare ourselves to observe the Lord's table.